Hi, everybody. Really quick before we start the show, I wanted to let you all know that we're starting to think about future stories to tell on Family Ghosts. So if you have a story that you think would work for our show, please send us a note. Ghosts at panoply.fm. That's ghosts at p-a-n-o-p-l-y dot f-m. Thank you so much for listening, and please enjoy this week's show. Greetings, ghost family. Welcome to Family Ghosts. On this episode, you're going to hear a piece from Michaela Bly. Thank you so much for having me. I'm going to tell you... Michaela is a storyteller. She actually teaches storytelling with the moth. And over the years, I've heard her tell stories around New York in bars and black box theaters. Stories about third graders embroiled in recess warfare. About ill-fated romances on a villa in Calabria. About being very good at German folk dancing. But there's one story I'd never heard her tell until recently, just a couple weeks ago, in fact. Michaela was invited to a middle school in Queens to tell the story of her grandma. What I want to do is help you get to know this woman so that when you learn more facts about it, you've got a little bit of something, a person, to connect to. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes it's hard to hear really big, tragic, awful things. And it's hard to read about things in history and go, okay, that is millions of people who were killed, who were exterminated. But I can't imagine millions of people. But you can imagine my grandma. Michaela's grandma survived the Holocaust. And for Michaela, who's told so many stories, this is the one she struggles with the most. This isn't a story you just tell. It's a story you carry. From Panoply, you're listening to Family Ghosts. I'm Sam Dingman, and this is Episode 6, That You Should Be Happy. When I was 10, me and my brother got to fly by ourselves for the first time to see my grandparents in Los Angeles. My grandmother picked us up at the gate. She had on a Kelly green pantsuit, white heels, a white leather purse, and she clicked with us down the halls of LAX to her beige Cadillac where there was candy in the front seat. She put on red lipstick before we left the parking garage. We drove all the way down Ventura Boulevard in the San Fernando Valley and she pointed out the places she went and what they used to be. Her red hair was set like a movie star from the 1950s. When we got to her house, my grandfather was waiting with coffee cake and orange juice from the orange tree in their backyard. My grandmother was very glamorous. She was Czech, and she dressed and sounded like Zsa, Zsa Gabor from Green Acres. She kept her nails done. She smoothed her sweater down and lifted her chin up whenever a photo was being taken. But she wasn't just glamorous. She was very real-world intelligent. She ran her own business as a real estate agent for years. Also, I don't know if I can express to you how much this woman loved chocolate. I'm a chocoholic. It's better than to be an alcoholic, don't you think so? I agree. <laughs> I think it's much better. What? I think it's much better. Yeah. I secretly recorded my grandmother sometimes. I just loved her voice. I had favorite things that she said. Most probably. Close the light. These are good problems. She liked to say, you're smart like your grandmother. And 
that you should be happy. That's the main thing. This was one of her favorite things to say. In 1993, when I was 15, they opened the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. We got untimed tickets because my grandparents were both survivors. They flew from L.A., and we took the train from Connecticut. It was my job to take them to the museum. My grandmother wore heels and a sweater with sequins. My grandfather wore his soft coat and soft hat. We spent 10 literal hours in this museum. They wanted to read every single plaque. I wondered how much they had known already of what they were reading. Some survivors became historians of the war, but my grandparents did not. I think this is because they just wanted to live their new lives in the U.S. They were both looking for the bright spot in the next frame. At the very end of the exhibits, right before the exit, there is a photo blown up the size of a museum wall. It's an aerial photo of the trains going to Auschwitz, the concentration camp taken by American planes in 1944, which is pretty crazy. It's basically saying, look, we knew about this. This is on us, too. My grandmother looks at this photo, and she looks at the date, and she says, I was there. I knew she had been there. But now we were standing side by side, staring together at this huge, grainy photo of trains. She tells me and Papa, by that time, we were heading there. So me and my family, we most probably were on one of these trains. Papa says, yeah, maybe. The three of us sat on a bench, looking at this photo for a long time. My grandparents held hands, but I was scared to touch them. It was the closest their history had ever felt. My grandmother, Ila, grew up in a town called Ungvar in Czechoslovakia. From how she's talked about it, it sounds like Ungvar was the place to be before the war if you were young. She spent all her money on clothes. She went out with big groups of friends. But by 1943, she was 22, they had been invaded by Hungary, and there were quotas on Jews and businesses and a curfew for Jewish people. Still, Ila married her attorney boyfriend Deju in a huge wedding, and according to her, the whole city came to celebrate. And then in spring of 1944, a new policy forced all the Jews of Ungvar out of their homes and into a ghetto, which was a brick factory outside of town. My grandmother was working for the city attorney, and her boss got her special dispensation to wear a yellow armband and leave the ghetto to work. Because she could leave the brick factory, she could smuggle money out to bury in people's backyards for them for when they returned, and on the way back, she would smuggle food in. Sometimes I think about my grandmother trying to concentrate in her job at the attorney's office while her new husband and parents and cousins were hungry in the factory, while her house was sealed up by the state. I think about her heading to work in town where it's business as usual, while all their Jewish neighbors and high school friends are imprisoned just a couple of miles away. In May 1944, the Hungarian soldiers started taking the people out of the brick factory and putting them on trains. No one knew where they were going. Her husband, Deju, was taken, and separately, Ila and her parents and her cousins were put on a train. She was about to turn 23, and she was three months pregnant. The train was packed, 
and they traveled for days with no food or water. When they stopped, they were taken off. Guards were dividing people into lines. Old people and children in one line, men in one line, women in another, all separate. They were at Auschwitz. My grandma watched as a man said to a guard, my wife is pregnant, please take very good care of her. The guard said, sure. And he put the pregnant woman in the line with the old people and children. You know how sometimes you make a decision, you're not sure why you made it, but your gut made it instead of your brain? Ela didn't really think. She watched the pregnant woman join the old people and children, and she just went ahead into the women's line. Her parents were put in the line for older people. Very soon after she got to the camp, Deju, her husband, got her a message over the fence from the men's section. He told her, do not tell anyone you're pregnant. So she didn't, except for a few people who could help her. Guards would ask, who is pregnant? We'll give you double rations. But she didn't say a thing. She had to be clever to hide her pregnancy. She worked in the kitchens for extra bread from the girls there, and she got a friend who worked in supplies to give her an extra big dress. She also had to avoid selection. That was when Dr. Joseph Mengele arrived to inspect the bodies of all the women inmates and chose who would work and who was sick. Each barrack of 600 women walked by him and the guards, naked, holding their dresses over their heads. Those who were selected to work went to dig ditches for tanks and other things. But if there was a mark on someone's body, if she looked sick or unable to work, he took her out of the line and she was never heard from again. I know now what happened to the women who were taken away. They were loaded onto trucks and dumped in the crematorium. They were subjects of Dr. Mengele's gruesome experiments. But my grandmother didn't know any of that yet. Ela was starting to show. She knew she had to avoid that inspection. And this is how she did it. There were kapos, Jewish guards, on either side of the barracks where Mengele would walk through. The guards were hungry too. She used the extra bread from the kitchen to bribe the guards to sneak her out, and she would hide in an empty barrack until Mengele came out. Then she'd loop back around to the barrack he'd just visited. There was a midwife she had known in Ungvar, who told her, when you think it's time to have this baby, try to wait until nighttime and come get me and I'll help you. And then it was time to have the baby. This is the part that I have trouble telling every time I try. There was a stone structure in the middle of the barrack where my grandmother gave birth. She had to stay very quiet. She was thin and the baby was thin. It was an easy delivery. The baby didn't cry. And the midwife said, kiss this baby, you will have others. And she kissed him. She was 23. She didn't have her parents with her. This was her first baby. And she didn't get to keep it. After she delivered, she stayed in the infirmary for two days. There was a Jewish nurse, Olga, who helped her and hid her condition as she recovered. And she also told her about the crematorium. She told Ela that their parents were dead and what the crematorium actually was. 
Ela couldn't stay for too long because Dr. Mengele came in and said, what's wrong with that one? And Olga said, no, she's fine. She just has a cold. She's going back to work. She gave her really sturdy shoes and a really warm dress, and she sent her back out. We've talked about this baby in my family. When she was growing up, my mom thought that the baby had been adopted and that she had a brother somewhere. I actually don't know that the baby was born alive. I sort of feel like if you only have a cup of soup and a piece of bread every day for the six months that you're there, that's not a lot to grow a baby. But I never said that to my grandmother. When she mentioned the baby in conversation, we let her talk, but didn't ask questions. She said the baby was very good, didn't cry, and she knew that it was certain death to keep the baby. But I also have a theory that when she was pregnant in the camp, the idea of having a baby, a family, a future, was what kept her alive. That she had someone else worth staying alive for. Maybe it took the focus off of her, off of what was happening. She just thought about getting enough food and staying alive for that future. There's so much more to her story. She escaped during a death march out of Auschwitz and walked across Poland toward home. Back in Ungvar, she ran black market merchandise over the borders. Deju didn't come back from the camp, and so she found my grandfather, Jula, who brought her French pastries. They got visas to America and ended up in Los Angeles because my grandmother wanted to live where the movie stars lived. They filled their suitcase with oranges on the boat ride over. There's all of that. And there's the real estate business and the family she had in Los Angeles, built from scratch, my mom and uncle and us, her five grandchildren. She was so glamorous her whole life. She wore silver fox in Ungvar and perfect red lipstick in Los Angeles. She named my mom after Judy Garland. It's all what got me here. It's the one million lucky moments that meant she made it out of the camp and got to the San Fernando Valley so she could have my mom and so my mom could have me. But I keep thinking about the baby. She had her baby in the dark. She was alone with the midwife, without her mother or grandmother. I've dreamed about that baby my whole life. They are terrible dreams. I'm always trying to save it. Family Ghosts will continue in a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you about another podcast I think the Ghost family will really love. And that podcast is TBTL which stands for Too Beautiful to Live. I first listened to TBTL on a whim in 2009, when they'd already been running for more than a year. I was broke, emotionally adrift, working in customer support at a tech company that had recently been sued by the federal government. I was low, friends. But from the opening moments of that first episode of TBTL, during which, I'll never forget, one of the hosts told a story about trying and failing to go for a walk after having too much wine at lunch, everything felt better. TBTL is pure magic. It's a talk show that feels like a storytelling show. It's a podcast that feels like a secret frequency on the radio dial that only the initiated know how to find. 
And to get painfully sincere for a moment, TBTL is the reason Family Ghosts even exists. It's the show that made me fall in love with radio and want to try my hand at making it myself. The whole ghost family term of endearment I like to use here on our show, I totally cribbed that from the fact that TBTL fans call themselves the Tens, because when TBTL launched, the hosts joked that they had tens of listeners. That's the most special thing about TBTL. It feels like finding a community of like-minded friends who want to talk passionately about all the same things that you want to talk passionately about. Like proper sandwich topping protocols, night pants, karaoke strategy, and a whole lot more. So consider this your initiation. Join hosts Luke Burbank, who you may know from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and Andrew Walsh, who you may know, well, you probably don't know Andrew. But as Luke and Andrew like to say, give TBTL a shot. It's hard to explain and easy to love. And as they also like to say, no mountain too tall and good luck to all. My grandmother told her story all the time. She told it over and over to us and to strangers in restaurants and seatmates on airplanes and pretty much whenever she could. I'd go with her to pick up her prescriptions, and by the time I got back from the window, the lady sitting next to her knew she was in Auschwitz, she has five grandchildren, she took a boat to America and filled her suitcase with oranges. It was hard to hear her story and not feel like it was a mandate or a map. I knew she was glamorous and smart. If you asked her, her proudest accomplishment was her five grandchildren. And I thought how many lucky moments had gotten me here. What is the responsibility that comes with being this lucky? When I was in college, my grandmother was always asking me about boys. She seemed like she had dated a lot. She'd been kind of a dish, I think, when she was my age. I thought of her with Red curly hair and a smart suit and picnics in the Czech countryside, leaning up against someone's car. I was doing theater. I curated rare books for the school library. I threw pretty great costume parties. But I didn't have any boyfriends. I had Ash, who was gay, and Ben, who was dating a different girl and only called me late at night. I never brought anyone home for Passover. I felt embarrassed when she asked me, like there was a timeline I wasn't following. I didn't think I was very lovable, much less glamorous. And I found her kind of intimidating, to be honest. I thought I must be very disappointing. After college, when I was 23, my grandfather died. He was the kindest, quietest man I'd ever known, and a wonderful baker, and told us he was bald from the helmet in the labor camp. My grandmother had stayed young, taking care of him. So after he died, I went out by myself to visit her and help her clean out his study and the garage. I could go because I was a teacher now, and I had summer vacations. I stayed with her for a week and a half, and it was the first time ever that it was just the two of us. When it was us together, something shifted. It was like we were roommates. She wasn't intimidating. She was kind of fun. When I was at her house, I didn't worry about being anywhere else. I'm the kind of person who needs to be getting something done all the time, and the pace of New York City makes me even more anxious. But at her house off Ventura Boulevard in the Valley, we got into this rhythm. You rest, then you do the banking. You read the newspaper a little, you rest, then you grocery shop at Ralph's. 
At the end of the day, you watch Jeopardy and that 70s show in syndication, and you eat a little chocolate and talk about how much you've accomplished. So, after that trip, I started flying out in the summers, just for a week at a time. The other cousins who lived in L.A., they saw her all the time. They had their own relationships with her. But I got to go out and have this special time. You know, people who went through concentration camp, nothing is a big problem. Everything is sol solvable. How they say it? Solvable, yeah. Yeah, yeah solvable. That's for you, but that's not for everybody. Don't you think so? When we were together, talking about the war was never an event. It was just part of the day. And there was no warning. We'd be talking about the new dry cleaner on Woodman, and suddenly she'd tell me how cold it was in Poland in 1944. If I asked her if something in the fridge was still good, she told me, you know, in the concentration camps, we didn't have what to eat. Because it was so bad there, you right. can't imagine. You don't have what to eat. Right. You were hungry all the time. You didn't have a dress. You didn't have anything. So sunshine and California and big leafy trees on her patio also meant cold and Europe and hunger. Everything we did, we did in spite of or after or because of the war. It was in every room with us. By the time I was 25, I had held down a teaching job for three whole years and managed to have a couple of boyfriends. But the ones I found never seemed like forever ones. When I was with someone, it was always like I was keeping some essential part of myself in a drawer. Sometimes it was my goofy, hopeful side that I left out of the relationship, and sometimes my nerdy side, and sometimes it was the part of me that wants to talk about aesthetics and ethics while we lay in bed. But there was always something. Meanwhile, my grandmother announced that the first grandchild to get married got the piano, and the first grandchild to have a baby got the piano bench. There was one guy, Jason. With him, my silly side was definitely in a drawer. But we got very serious, and my grandmother even met him at my brother's wedding. She flirted like crazy with him. He was totally charmed. At the wedding, he kept trying to make meaningful eye contact with me during the vows, like, look, this will be us one day. And I thought I would have to lock that drawer forever. And I couldn't. When we broke up, I lied to my grandmother for months on the phone. Then I finally told her, and she was so disappointed. She kept asking me about him. I tried to explain to her that I wasn't in love enough. I flew out to L.A. that summer and called her from baggage claim, and she said, Great, you're here. Why did you break up with Jason? Back at her kitchen table, eating chocolate pudding from Trader Joe's, she said, Listen. You just pick one. I just picked one. And I asked her, but didn't you think Papa was so wonderful? And she said he was medium. I thought I knew what she meant. For her, happiness hadn't been about grand, true love. It was about safety. He was the one who brought her French pastries after the war when they had wandered home and they waited for word of their families. They just teamed up. It wasn't about love. It was about defeating the past. So who was I to wait for true love? It felt like a spoiled thing to do, like asking if the bread was organic. 
When I left for home, she kissed me on the cheek and hugged me tightly against her sparkly sweater and told me, you're gonna be fine. That you should be happy, that's the main thing. Back in Brooklyn, teaching third grade, I called her every other week, and every other week she'd ask me about Jason again. Was it too late? Wasn't he so nice? Where was he right now? I felt stuck and sad, and every time I talked to her, I felt like I disappointed her more and more. My brother was married, my cousins were all well on their way to being married, and there was that thing that you should be happy. I wanted it. I wanted to live up to the luckiness and to her strength, to be a glamorous girl, a happy girl, living an extraordinary life. I felt so plain. But then something great happened. I was talking to my friend Celia, who for the last few months had just been happy all the time. She would hold your face lovingly when she said hi to you, and she was wearing all these silky tops. And I asked her, what's been happening with you? And she invited me to an orientation to something called the School of Womanly Arts. Basically, I gathered it was about self-esteem and being a woman, and I said, why not? So orientation was in a ballroom midtown, and there's all these women there who are just transcendently happy and all wearing pink feather boas. And Let's Get It Started by the Black Eyed Peas starts blasting, and the double doors of this hotel ballroom slam open, and in comes a palanquin. You know, a palanquin is like that thing Cleopatra got carried through Cairo on. It's being carried by two men in khakis and no shirts who look kind of confused like they were clearly just convinced to carry the palanquin right outside. And this woman riding it is dressed in silk pajamas. She's in her 50s with this perfect blowout. And she hops off, kisses one of the guys on the mouth, and grabs the microphone and yells, Hello, ladies! And the whole place cheers. And I cheer too. So her name is Mama Gina, and she starts talking to us like a revival preacher, asking, are we sad? Are we sick of not getting what we want? And she has the answer. We just need to trust our turn on. She explains being turned on is not just about sex. It's about knowing in your gut that something is right and bragging about what you do well. When you're turned on, you're like a big taxi light drawing things to you and other people want to be part of the fun. And I fall under the spell. Really, in a good way. The only thing in this room is joy. Maybe I can conjure an extraordinary life. I don't yet believe it, but Mama Gina is so powerful and so confident that I can be that too. So I join the School of Womanly Arts. I figure nothing else has worked. And the woman who takes my check has amazing skin. And she smiles at me like she's in love with me already and says, welcome, and gives me a pink bag with my own pink boa. And we go for weekends once a month. We make lists of things we desire. We brag. We learn how to flirt. We have dance breaks every two hours in class. And it starts working. I go on my first internet date ever, and I have an amazing time, and I buy new underwear, and it doesn't even cover my whole butt. Up to now, I'd gone to Los Angeles dreading the questions and feeling like I wasn't enough. But I came to L.A. that summer with a whole new strategy. I had a new, fun, sexy way of approaching life, and I was going to use it with my grandmother, too. 
we were two gorgeous girls. I went to swim aerobics with her and gossiped with the ladies. I asked her for makeup advice. And when she asked me about Jason, I told her, I'm playing the field. I kiss a lot of boys. How can you pick just one? And that worked. She said thoughtfully, that's a good thing. I kissed a lot of boys too. It was like Mama Gina taught me, have fun and people will have fun with you. I made a sign for her fridge to remind her what medicine to take. And it said, one glucosamine, one Prozac, grandma is gorgeous. I called her gorgeous all the time. I would get up in the morning and make her a banana smoothie and say, good morning, gorgeous. And she would laugh and read the LA Times on her white leather couch and drink the smoothie. That summer, thanks to my lady cult, I was discovering just how glamorous I could be. But she still liked it the best when I went out with friends who were boys and had Jewish-sounding names and cars to pick me up in. I let her think they were dates. Because a Jewish boy who lives in L.A., I can have my babies right here. I would say, Daniel or David or Isaac is going to pick me up. Is that okay? And she'd say, absolutely. Do you want a house key? I won't wait up. Once my friend David was picking me up, and I told my grandmother, David's here, I'm heading out. I was wearing a sundress and a cardigan, and she comes out and she asks, this is what you're wearing? And she just reaches over and undoes the top button of my cardigan. And I was like, Grandma, grandmas do this. They want you to date Jewish boys from Universal City. But with her, it came with the weight of her story. Even glamorous was for a reason. The reason was babies. This is the dream I have about my grandmother's baby. Someone hands me the baby outside a lady's room. It's really small. I don't have any food, and I know I'm responsible for it. I spend the dream trying to wash it gently in the public bathroom sink. In one version of this dream, I say sorry a lot to the baby. My brother had the first great-grandchild. Ramona. He got the piano and the piano bench. There's a great picture. Grandma is holding Ramona like a little squash and smiling so wide. And Ramona has all of this red hair and a mohawk, even though she's just a few weeks old. And I was 30 and I was next in line. Every time she saw Ramona, she'd turn to me at some point in the visit and say, you should have one. When I was 16, when I thought about my grandma's baby in the camp, it was a terrible, sad, abstract idea. But when I was 30 and saw my grandmother with babies, it was a whole other thing. She made faces at them and called them darling and jingled her jewelry. It was wonderful and also made me want to cry. Once, my grandmother and I were at synagogue, and she was watching a baby across the aisle. And just as it went to silent prayer, the whole place went quiet, and she said loudly to me, Have a baby. You don't even have to have a husband. It was funny, but it was also hard to hear. She was the only one of her siblings who made it out of the war. She had her first baby on cold stone. She rebuilt her family in California sunshine. What was I going to do? When I was 31, I was still teaching third grade, but now I was dating the first grade teacher, Dustin. This was the first person I ever seriously considered picking. If I was going to pick one, he was the first one I thought, well, maybe I'll pick him. He was sweet and funny and kind. He played guitar and loved kids as much as I did. 
The problem was we were the Sid and Nancy of our elementary school. We broke up and got back together so much that my boss checked with me before faculty meetings. We weren't the only reason there was a no alcohol reminder before school functions, but we were a big one. When we broke up, I wouldn't tell my grandmother because we were always getting back together and honestly, I didn't want to confuse her. But I was confused. With him, I left my nerdiest parts in a drawer and I missed those parts so much. I knew if we ended up together, we'd be settled and safe and I might just teach third grade forever. But I was starting to wonder if there was something else I wanted to do and someone else I might end up loving. He was definitely someone else's fantastic, but he was my medium and I couldn't bring myself to really pick him. Later that year, I flew from New York City to visit my grandma in the summer, the way I always did. The paintings on the walls in her house had not changed in 40 years, and she had the same lipsticks in little gold cases on her vanity. She still drove the Cadillac, but now she didn't like to make left turns into traffic, which, to be fair, are very challenging in Los Angeles. I was deciding if I should stay at my job teaching third grade, or if I should apply to grad school, or if I should go to Brazil. I will be totally honest that a couple of these were strategies to help me really successfully break up with Dustin. We talked about my job at the kitchen table, eating chocolate pudding. I told her about the PhD program I was thinking about. She said, you're smart like your grandmother. And then she asked, but can you still have a baby even if you go to grad school? Six months later, I broke up with Dustin for good in this all-night, terrible, yelling and crying big final breakup. I went home to change clothes before I went to school to teach, and I thought to myself, my grandmother is going to kill me. She was the only one I really didn't want to tell. He was supposed to come out to Los Angeles with me in two weeks. It was a mess of a moment. I had gotten into grad school and had just finally given notice at my job. I had broken up with Dustin, and my period was a week late. That morning, I was in front of my third graders, and my dad called my cell and told me that my grandmother had died. I left school to pack, but I couldn't face being alone in my apartment yet. So I went to Trader Joe's on my way to the train and bought chocolate orange peel, chocolate-covered almonds, and a big block of semi-sweet baker's chocolate for the plane. When I flew to Los Angeles, my period was already a week and a half late. I went to her funeral, definitely thinking I might be pregnant. We gathered at her house. My grandma is gorgeous note was still on the fridge. And she seemed to be just outside every room I walked into, clicking through in a pantsuit or a sequin sweater, photographs layered like pastry on all the surfaces. I was in charge of the program to hand out at the funeral, and I put her favorite photo on the front. It was taken when she was in her 50s, sitting on her leather couch, leaning forward a little, her chin up and to the right. She looks so good in that photo and you can tell she knows it. It's not usual to have an open casket at a Jewish funeral. But before the funeral started, the man at the place asked us if we wanted to see her. 
they could open the casket for just the family. We stood in a weird, frozen tableau, me and my brother and mother and father, all touching. And they opened the casket. My mom took in her breath and got smaller. And my first thought was, my grandma would have been so annoyed about how she looked. She was very specific about lipstick and how her hair got set. She did a red, nice and easy rinse up until she died. And the body in the casket just did not look like her. The lipstick was coral, which I know she would not have chosen. And someone had given her a haircut before she died, when she was stuck in bed. And it was an old lady haircut, that layered helmet. It didn't look like her. She was old, but I never thought my grandmother was an old lady. She never wore sensible shoes. She was stylish. And it wasn't that she was vain. That's not it. It wasn't until I was looking at her in the casket that I figured it out. She respected the body that got her through and survived. She treated it with love and set her hair and smoothed her sweaters when photos got taken. I got back to Brooklyn after my grandmother's funeral, and now I was three weeks late. I found myself Googling prenatal vitamins. I was thinking, I'm the age my mom was when she had me. The last thing my grandmother said to me was have a baby. I thought I should keep it. Maybe I should have this baby. This image kept happening in my head of me driving at night, a little girl asleep in the front seat next to me. And then I got my period. Relief. But something else too. Maybe loneliness. Even though she was gone, I still wanted to give my grandma what she wanted. Family Ghosts will continue in a moment, but first I wanted to tell you about one more podcast that Family Ghost listeners will really enjoy. It's from our colleagues here at Panoply, and it's called Haunted. As you're all probably aware by now, we like to say here on our show that every house is haunted. But as you're also aware, we're speaking metaphorically when we say that. And Haunted is a show about the other kind of haunting, the kind where objects inexplicably fly across rooms, or where faces suddenly appear and then vanish, or burns mysteriously materialize on your skin. Haunted is a podcast that investigates these real-life supernatural experiences in forensic detail. In each episode, host Danny Robbins talks to people who have seen, heard, and even spoken to ghosts. He honors the stories of the people who see them, but he doesn't sensationalize or belittle them, even as he tries as hard as he can to find rational explanations for these phenomenal events. The result is a show that's thrilling for both believers and skeptics. Haunted is about the real people at the heart of these stories, people whose supernatural experiences are colored by emotions we can all empathize with, bereavement, loneliness, stress, and change. So check out Haunted. Find the show in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I've spent the years since my grandmother died telling and retelling her story. I tell it to new friends, people at work, and I tell it to students at schools. I tell it because I really like talking about her. 
and I tell it to students because I think it's a great way to learn history. But I'm telling it to myself, too. All this time, I've been turning it over and over in my hands, trying to figure out what to do with it, read the mandate, or follow the map. I'm 39 now. I'm the only one of her grandchildren who hasn't had babies. There are five of us, and all of the cousins are married, except me. All of the cousins have children, except me. And here's something. I don't actually currently want babies. My brother already has the piano bench. I've hedged my bets. I froze my eggs. I signed up for a newsletter from Single Mothers by Choice, just for research. But I don't have that feeling where you want to eat the feet of the babies you see. In the years since my grandmother died, I've done a lot of things that surprised me. I went to Alaska by myself. I took a performance class where I had to kickbox and sing karaoke with a live jazz band, and I howled like a wolf while my teacher yelled at me. I started telling true stories on stage, tough and funny ones, both, and ended up teaching people how to tell their important stories. I broke into my childhood house. I started a company called Cool Complimenters with my niece Ramona when she was six. We handed out compliments on the two train. I met a man from England here in New York and decided I might love him, and so I went to London for two weeks for our third date. Some of these things turned out great, and some did not. But I've realized I actually like going toward the things that scare me, and that maybe I have been like this all along. When I think about just the babies, yes, I'm not following the map. But the places I've ended up are sometimes pretty brave and definitely all mine. I started telling my grandmother's story at schools after I'd been telling stories a while. And I found that when I shared it like that in auditoriums with questions from eighth graders afterwards, I was able to see it in a new way. Every time I tell the story, I am going to get emotional about the baby. But I don't have to be afraid of it anymore. I can take the story out and put it on a table and look at it, separate from me. It isn't a mandate or a map. It's the dirt I was grown in. When you're an accident of circumstance, you're not just unlikely. You are a statistical impossibility. And that can make you feel like nothing you do will be big enough or right enough to deserve being alive. But I've been doing small, brave things all along. I tell her story, and I honor it, and I carry it. And I also get to make choices and mistakes that bring me toward happiness. That's what my grandmother wanted and what she gave me. She never said that you should be amazing. That's the main thing. When you fall down, you're... Belly flop? No, no, no. Now you're a zombie. Eat all the brains. No, I know it. I know it. (laughs) That's Ramona, my niece, the other cool complimenter. She's the first great-grandchild. She's in third grade now, and she and I are really close. We get in trouble sometimes when I sort of forget that I'm the grown-up. You're still my baby, even though you're insane. (laughs) When we hang out, we get in a rhythm. We plan a project, we start it, we have a snack, we start another project. With the two of us, it feels like everything is possible, even if we don't always follow through. We have many projects that we start, but we don't finish. Like, the Cool Complimenters is also a work in progress. We are family in a way that I love. 
I love that she's growing up knowing you can get married and have kids, or you can be just fine on your own. Do you remember what my present to you will be for high school graduation? Oh, yes, I remember. We would go on a camper, and we would go around the world um, for making movies. Yeah, the United States, but yeah. Yeah, around the United States, correct me. Um, I'm already looking forward to taking that trip with Ramona in nine years. Her dad already said it was okay. I'll probably do the driving at night, and Ramona can sleep in the front seat next to me. We will be two gorgeous girls, glamorous and loving, and smart like my grandmother. Family Ghosts is hosted and produced by me, Sam Dingman, with Verilyn Williams, Odelia Rubin, and Jason DeLeon. Our story editor is Michaela Bly. Our show features original music by Luis Guerra, and our show art is by Paul Glankler. Our managing producer is Mia Lobel, and Andy Bowers is Panoply's chief content officer. Special thanks to The Moth, Catherine McCarthy, a.k.a. DJ C-Mac, David Bly, Tony Gantz, Ron and Judy Bly, Ramona and Eli Bly Gantz, Emily Campbell, Ms. Pavlu and the students of IS-141Q in Queens, Anesha Roy Chowdhury, Jennifer Trowbridge, and Lily Tyson. Learn more about our show at our new website, familyghosts.panoply.fm. You'll find links to our Twitter, Instagram, and our mailing list, The Ghost Post, as well as our episode archives and lots more about the show. You can also email us, familyghosts.panoply.fm. Send us your stories. Thank you so much to all of you who've left reviews in Apple Podcasts. If you're enjoying our show and have not yet left a review, please do that. It has a huge impact on the Apple Podcast charts, and the longer our show stays on those charts, the more new people can find our work. Thank you for listening, Ghost Family. We'll see you next week on the season finale of Family Ghosts, where every house is haunted. Next time on Family Ghosts. I think I'm going to try to walk down there and stand by the water. How did I end up down by a creek? I just thought I heard something in the trees. And what was that in the trees? Kind of afraid there's going to be a bear. An untold family story leads me to Ithaca, New York. How do I tell you it's none of your business? That's next week on the season finale of Family Ghosts.